This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Dylan Davenport is the managing director of The Wild, a creative agency inside the phenomenally successful Jungle Creations. They're a social first publisher, which is really disrupting the traditional ad agency model. Fascinating business model. They've got all of these channels like the ITV and Channel 4, just like them, but they're dedicated to interests that people have like food, crafting, fitness, female empowerment, and they've amassed 115 million followers across all of them. One of their brands, Twisted, the food brand, that has more than 500 million sponsored views, 27 million people are in the community. It's the number one food and drink Facebook page in the UK. And they've also launched their own restaurant on top of all of that. Now with this super engaged audience, they now understand what people like, what they share, what they're fascinated by, what's emerging. And they use those insights to solve their clients' biggest business challenges. Dylan is just a highly regarded advertising veteran, having worked at some of the most prestigious ad agencies of the last decade, Rapier, B&B, Adam and Eve, who later became Adam and Eve DDB. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with what it takes for brands and agencies to be successful today, then you will find this conversation to be just absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Dylan Davenport. Dylan Davenport is the managing director of The Wild, the creative agency of Jungle Creations, one of the fastest growing companies in Europe, according to the Financial Times. Over a three-year period, the company grew by a staggering 3,863%. He has held senior roles at Rapier, B&B, and Adam and Eve. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Dylan Davenport, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thanks very much, Nathan. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. You've you've got an absolutely fascinating background, and I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a very long time now. Because when when you were 13 years old, you did a two week work experience stint in the ad mm. agency AMV, which sounds like really great introductory experience for a young person at that time. Tell us how you got started in the advertising and media world. Um, that makes me sound desperately precocious, doesn't it? At 13 years old, right. I, knew, I knew my Visionary. mind <laughs> and I wanted to go into advertising. Sure, sure. Yeah, it was, um, it was one of those things where at 13, I, I, I met this guy called Michael Bulk, who was CEO of Abamy Vickers. I was playing a football game at school and uh, it was one of those games where, unsurprisingly, I was putting in a bit, a bit of a poor turn. Uh, so I got subbed off and standing on the sidelines was another father of one of the kids there, Michael. And uh, we got chatting and he mm. basically sold me the dream of what advertising was all about. Mm. And uh, as a result of that, went in for two weeks at AMV. And it was one of those experiences where essentially they rolled out the red carpet. So I think on day one, I went to Capital Radio, met the DJs. Day two, went to ITV Studios. Day three... I think I was on a shoot day four doing a focus group. So wow. it was all of the best bits of advertising, Amazing. which as a 13-year-old, you can imagine, was quite exciting and quite exhilarating. Your mind must have been blown at that age. I think, yeah, it was. It was one of those things where you kind of see all this stuff happening on TV or radio or whatever it might be, and you never know quite how it's put together. Mm. And having that experience of seeing it firsthand is phenomenal. 
And I think AMV were one of those agencies where they were at the top of their game for 25 years. Mm-hmm. They knew how to do it well and they knew how to attract talent and they knew how to get people excited about what the industry had to offer. And yeah, I suppose I got the bug then. And it was one of those things where from a young age, I thought advertising was something I wanted to get into, which is slightly terrifying looking back on it. <laughs> but it seems to have worked out right. Definitely. Well, it's really interesting because I guess at that point you would have thought, oh, this is a, this is a shoe-in. I've already got the experience. I've got a relationship with, uh, with the owner of the, of the company. But actually, when you wanted to apply full-time, he actually asked you to f- uh, submit a formal application and go through the regular application process. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think um, this was my first lesson of nepotism, right? Positive <laughs> and nepotism gone wrong. Yeah, so it worked extremely well getting me in the door for that first bit of experience. And I think um, quite rightly, you know, Michael is running or was running as the biggest agency in town, and he wants to make sure he is filtering and making sure he's getting the best talent in. So he was like, "Look, I can't, I can't help you. I'll give you a foot up to kind of show you what the world's like." But you've got to prove yourself on your own two feet. So, yeah, I formally applied when I finished university and finished my travels, which I think was the right way to do it. It's one of those little lessons. It's a small lesson, but kind of leaning into nepotism too much and expecting mm. things and being entitled to get your foot in the door in certain places. Mm. I think you can't lean on it too heavily. You've got to demonstrate your own worth. You've got to prove that you've got the capabilities yourself. So, no, I applaud him for doing that mm. because it could have been all too easy. Really interesting. You you studied psychology and then you went to Australia where you worked for a few different agencies out there. What perspective did that international experience give you? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a funny one because I did, uh, did my degree in psychology. Once again, I was kind of using that as a bit of a lead into getting into advertising, psychology being that thing where you can kind of really... I suppose, get under the skin of what people think, why they behave, mm-hmm. how you can kind of use messaging to kind of really understand what works for people. So it was always going to be a lead into advertising. And so when I went to Oz, yeah, invariably, I did do the bar jobs and various bits and bobs like that. But equally, I wanted to make sure I was continuing on that journey in the advertising world. So I went door knocking on uh, every single agency in Sydney and literally handed in my CV. Hmm. I just kind of went, went 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 up to the receptionist asked if i could speak to the md invariably uh that would not work right you be there sure and lohan linters turned around and said look i'll tell you what we really like your endeavor so come along uh do some work here and i spent i think about three months with those guys and i think the thing that really struck me was once you were in the door how well regarded uh the british advertising scene is seen as down in Australia. Now, this is quite a few years ago, and I don't know if that's shifted in any way, but certainly back in the day, it seemed like there was a reputation coming out of London of the best creativity, the best minds, the best strategic thinking, and certainly the best work. So when I was at Lowe, it was funny, even though I was essentially an intern and doing a work placement, you know, I was regarded as this kind of, wow, it's the guy from Britain, he must know absolutely everything about advertising. And it was, couldn't be further from the truth at that point, but it was very flattering. (laughs) Sure. By the way, do you think that's still the reputation globally? Is Britain still seen as sort of the home of the best creativity, the best ad work um, globally? I think we have got a huge job and we have a huge responsibility as an industry in the UK to make sure we're attracting the best talent and to dem- and to prove that we're making the best work. I think, you know, the whole Brexit situation, which I don't want to get into too much, mm-hmm. but, you know, it does worry me a little bit about the, the movement of talent across borders and whether we're going to be able to attract all the international talents to demonstrate that we are the hub of creativity for Europe. 
um, which I think historically has been the case. Um, in the last few years, if I look at the work that I've seen that I think is absolutely phenomenal, um, the work coming out of New Zealand, I think has been brilliant. I think there's some brilliant stuff that's been coming out of Australia. I don't think we've got any right to say we are the home of creativity. We've certainly got a legacy and we've got some of the best agencies, but I think everyone is doing brilliant work across the globe. And I think it would be arrogant for me to say that we've still got that, that position that we used to hold potentially. In 2003, you got a job at Rapier, an integrated DM agency, and you thought that you'd only be there for nine months. And three years later, you were still there. Uh, They had some really big clients at the time, AA, uh, Southwestern Trains, Virgin Media. What made you stay that long when you had no intention to? Yeah, just just to put that in the context of why it's nine months, that seems like a really, really odd strategy going into a job, (laughs) Rob. But um, yeah, I got back from uh, Australia and applied for... The, the grad schemes of the big agencies. So referencing back to AMV, I applied for their grad scheme. And the process of going through the grad scheme was about three or four months. And then once awarded, you then need to work, wait a further six months before uh, the contract was start. So I'd kind of got back. I had very little money and I didn't want to sit on my hands for that length of time. So I went out there to talk to agencies that are hiring immediately as well as doing the grad schemes. And so I was successful on the grad schemes but equally I wanted to work. So I started a rapier with a view to starting a grad scheme after the nine months. And the truth is I learned so much for rapier. It would have been foolish of me to kind of jump ship. And rapier for, for any of you listeners that don't know what it was, not only having one of the most uncomfortable names to say in a, in an open office um, was, was an integrated agency. It was an independent integrated agency. Um, it, pro- it was very proud of being able to do not only TV work, but also DM. And I think what it taught me was working on a truly integrated piece of business and looking at the customer journey from end to end is something I probably wouldn't have got anywhere else. And equally, we were working with some clients at the time who really wanted to kind of embody that end-to-end idea approach. So the, the, the clients that you referenced there with the AA, smart cars, mm. Virgin Media, they were very progressive in their thinking at the time. And it was just quite an exciting place to be. And it was very, I would, this sounds quite harsh, but it was very much like a creative consultancy. Uh, it was very driven by the data. It was very driven by the process. But at the same time, there was a guy called John Townsend, who's now the founder of Now Advertising Agency. He was very driven by brilliant ideas. And I think that just gave me a really good full picture view on what the entire communications world looked like and how it existed. So yeah, nine years turned into three years, had a great time Hmm. there, learned an awful lot and yeah, very grateful for what I learned. Hmm. Fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about BT McGuinness Bungay, BNB. In 2006, you became an account director for BNB, one of the most celebrated agencies in the world. Clients at the time were Carling, Cobra, Thompson Holidays and First Choice Holidays. And you say that you met some of the best business minds that you've ever worked with to date. Who were they and what did you learn from them? 
Yeah, so BT McGuinness Bungay, once again, an awful name to say if you say it quickly, BNB. So, you know, just just talking about the learnings going through my career, one of the things I thought when I was going to set up an agency was it's got to be a name that people get straight away and you don't need to unpack. Um, But yeah, BT McGuinness Bungay, uh, there were three guys there in particular that were just phenomenal. So you had Trevor BT, who was one of the founding partners. He's an advertising and creative luminary who did the Hello Boys campaign for Wonder Bra. He did the FC UK, so huh. coined FC UK for French Connection. Wow. So just just a way of doing disruptive advertising in a really powerful way. He understood how to reach the masses as opposed to going too elite, and was just just a, just a brilliant creative mind. And then mm-hmm. the other person in that triumvirate was Andrew McGuinness, just a brilliant business leader. Mm. And the third person was David Bain, who was the, the, the head of strategy. And David Bain's background was kind of in cultural anthropology. I believe he was a doctor. So just a really interesting way of coming at problems and always starting with culturally, what does this mean? What's the human inside that sits behind it? And I think, you know, for me, all throughout my career, it's always been groups of three that have made brilliant things. And those <laughs> three just absolutely drove that business into into a, another level and you know i'm so glad to have had the opportunity mm. to work there and i learned an awful lot it's a great time what what an education and those those three people brilliant in their own rights how well did they work together how well did they play together as a three because sometimes you could sort of see that maybe there might be a little bit of ego and, and might be a little <laughs> bit of um <laughs> you're laughing there but how yeah. well did they play together as a trio i think i think the the the, the, the relationship is based on trust so <clears throat> Trev, the creative director, would trust David Bain with creative ideas. Equally, Andrew McGuinness would be trusted with all the business side of it, but also the strategy. Um, they just trusted each other and had a mutual respect. But equally, you know, there's got to be a bit of friction as well, because that's when the best things happen. Sure. So, you know, if they did fall out, it was only because they cared and only because sure. it was going to lead to the best answer. So. Yeah. No, they all brought different things to the table. I think, you know, Andrew McGuinness was the guy I probably had most contact with mm-hmm. as he was kind of leading the account management function as the CEO. And he was, you know, he gave me an early lesson, which was, he said to me, the thing is, Dylan, I'm a businessman at heart and I could have gone into any industry and I chose advertising. And I was like, okay, that's mm-hmm. supposed to inspire me because, you know, I thought you were as passionate as I am about this industry. And he was, yeah. but equally, he was more passionate about business and making businesses a, businesses a success. Huh. And now, you know, as I've kind of grown up and lived longer in this industry, I look back at that and go, that's actually pretty shrewd because at the end of the day, we are an industry. We are a business. Yes, our output is advertising. Sure. But ultimately, to succeed, you've got to build a successful business. And, yeah, that was that was a great learning. You know, David would always look at, as I kind of touched on, things from a, a cultural and a human perspective. And, you know, I remember him saying to me, do you remember the uh, Cadbury's Griller ad, Nathan? Oh, who doesn't? Yeah, so absolutely phenomenal piece of advertising. And his, his mantra was, you know, that idea did not come from a focus group. And he was one of those planners who absolutely saw the value in focus groups driving insights, but not driving answers. Mm-hmm. And he was always about kind of, I want insights in order to inform what is the best solution. And I, I just I just love that about the way he operated because he was always, always hungry for more to understand more about how people worked. And then with Trev, he was just, um, yeah, how can I put this kindly? He was single-minded and brutal. Right. Okay. How he saw ideas, and that was that was a huge benefit. You need you need um, you know one of the things we've talked about previously is what makes a good uh, creative 
you need creatives to be stubborn. You need creatives to be single-minded. Mm. You need creatives to back themselves and believe an idea. Mm. And Trev was very good at doing that. But at the same time, he acknowledged where the line stood. And if, you know, if he felt that we needed to acquiesce to what a client was asking for, we understood that. But equally, he believed in an idea and he'd push it, he'd push it. And I think that's, for me, the main difference between a brilliant creative and a not so brilliant creative, because you can have creatives who are stubborn, who will not acquiesce, who will be absolutely single-minded in what they want, but to the point where it actually damages the product, damages the idea and damages the relationship. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Trev never fell foul of that. Really, really fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about Adam and Eve, probably the greatest advertising agency in the world, at least over the last handful of years or so. They've just won so many awards at Cannes. Um, just, they've got a tremendously strong reputation in the industry. Um, you made the decision to leave BNB to join Adam and Eve in 2011. That must have been looked upon by friends and family, like a little bit of, hmm, why, why are you doing that? To join a sm relatively smallish, uh, upstart at the time, um, how, what factors led to you making that decision? Yeah, you're right. So um, I joined Adam and Eve when it was about 15 people. Wow. Um, so it was a very small startup agency at the time. And in truth, that was the reason I joined. So when I joined Rapier to begin with, I think there were about 30 people. When I joined uh, BMB, there were about 20 of us. And I just love that startup mentality. I love that startup energy. I love the um, the notion of being able to build something uh, with a clear vision, starting from scratch. And yeah, I joined Adam and Eve, and it was I think the most awkward thing about joining Adam and Eve was the fact that it was only about 100 meters down the road from beating me against Bungay. So I had to say take the same commute to work. Oh. I had to walk past BNB <laughs> every morning, and that yeah, that was a little bit uncomfortable sure. for the first few weeks. But then kind of got used to it. But sure. um. Yeah, the, the, the draw of Adam and Eve was just very, very simple. It was, uh, once again, an agency that had been set up by three people who had a very clear vision of what they wanted to achieve, what they wanted to do, and they were brilliant minds working together. And it was, it was a funny old agency because it had started and had a bit of a bump in the road because the guys who set it up uh, had left uh, Rainey Kelly, and sadly there was a bit of legal wranglings about how they had left. So sure, sure. they were stipend from actually doing any kind of new business. So once that was resolved and they were allowed to kind of fly, it really did fly. And yeah, I joined at that point when, you know, it was about to kick on. Mm. And it was it was a phenomenal time. We, I think in the first week I joined, uh, I was pitching on Halifax Bank, which you might look at on the face of it and not think it's too glamorous, but they were a very progressive brand in so far as the, the work they'd previously done with Howard back in the 90s had kind of set the benchmark of what they wanted to do as a business. And this was at a time when the, uh, the banking bubble had just gone and banks weren't really seen in the most positive light. And they were like, guys, we, we used to be the, the most loved brand. Now we are one of the most hated because we're part of HBOS, which <laughs> was ostensibly responsible for some of the ills that befell this country. Sure. And um, how do we get back? How do we get back to being a love brand? And that's a great challenge, you know, when you're literally a rock bottom and, you know, you turn around and go, look, help us get back up. That's that's a really good challenge. Interesting you know? challenge, yeah. yeah. So so that's kind of in my first week and then equally I kind of went in, ran various other bits of business. But back to the three guys around it, you know, I thought I got it good with 
the guys I'd been working with at B&B, but working with David Bain, uh, James Murphy and, <clears throat> and Ben Priest was, this sounds pretty outrageous, but was like taking it to another level, wow. you know, talking about that dynamic, these guys, they're more like brothers than, than colleagues. They kind of lived, slept everything about this agency. They worked pretty much both weekends to make it work. And I think that was built out of the fact that the first two years had been a bit of a full start for them. Mm -hmm. So they were so vested in making a success of it that they really cared. And that, that level of care that they put into it and how much they really wanted to invest came through and it was motivating to kind of work for. So yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a great decision. What, what was so different about what Adam and Eve created than what had come before from other advertising agencies? Because you could argue that other ad, ad agencies before them were equally as passionate and worked as hard yeah. and had yeah. you know amazing creative people. What was so different that Adam and Eve brought to the marketplace that we hadn't seen before? In truth, yeah, and if you look back, you know, at this entire industry back 60 years, it's always been about great ideas and it's always been about insights that people can relate to and as a result, ideas that people love. And I think what Adam and Eve believed in was just stripping it all back and going, right, what is the core insight that is going to drive the best idea? Mm. Which doesn't sound that complicated. Um, and I, I'm, uh, I'm sure people would love me to say we had clever mechanics behind the scenes sure. that we were able to do data harvesting in, a, in a, a way that no one else could do. But mm. the truth is it was just about creating brilliant work mm. and equally being brave. And I think when you are part of a network or certainly if you're well-established, being brave and having that entrepreneurial spirit, it does depart to a degree. And it's harder to kind of capture that. Like, why, why don't we do it? Why not? You know, what have we got to lose? And I think these guys are like, We've gone through the hardest thing we've ever done in our careers with this legal case. What have we got to lose now? So they could mm. be brave in the ideas they put forward. And I think, you know, it, it was um, it was absolutely joyous that the founding client was John Lewis. And, you know, Adam and Eve did take John Lewis on that journey from, you know, seen as a, a mid-market retailer, sure. appealing to a slightly older demographic, to this cultural juggernaut that people were actually waiting for the communications they were going to put out around Christmas and to do that and to, you know, kind of get to that point, you need a brave client and we had mm. that incredible list and you need brave, a brave agency and a brave agency that's going to put it on the line and go, we believe this is right. This is the thing that's going to make your business fly and, you know, pay dividends. Really interesting. So, so you talk about John Lewis, uh, you talk about Halifax as well. And the interesting challenges for both of them is that they were both once seen in, in a particular light um, and for one reason or another, whether that was because of increasing competition or taking the eye off the consumer or just the way that sort of uh, the, the, the consumer landscape has changed, they, want, they weren't where they once were as a brand. Talk about what Adam and Eve's approach was to breathing new air into once great brands and sort of reinvigorating them. Yeah, it's, um, as I said, I, I don't think there's too much science oh. to it. It's about understanding what matters to the audience. If you understand what matters to people and you can articulate that in a way that they can relate to, that's when magic can happen. So, you know, what, what Adam and Eve did, which wasn't rocket science, was just really get into the mind of the consumer and go, wow. Sure. Well, what can we do? And so with the John Lewis work in particular, hitting upon the insight that, 
you know, it's about the gift of giving at Christmas and what it means to not only give a gift, but receive a gift sure. and, the, and the emotion around that, that, that kind of unopened, um, you know, Pandora's box when mm. it came to the opportunities available. And it was just, and that's the truth. If you can unlock emotion, if you can really tap into that, whether that is making you viscerally respond to something through crying or laughing or just being entertained, mm. that, that is the key. And I think Adam and Eve were just brilliant at doing that. And it was quite interesting when we <clears throat> were bought by DDB and Omnicom and joined with DDB to create Adam and Eve DDB. Uh, we started working with Les Bonnet, who is one of the godfathers of effectiveness. Sure. And you know, one of the first things or the thing he's been espousing for years is the power of emotional advertising over rational advertising. And I think one of the things that we always believed in Adam and Eve was that, you know, make it emotional. Yes, there is a role for rational messaging, but if you can unlock the heart of this brand and get people to be able to relate to it, that is when you're winning. Really, really interesting. So so you touched on uh, the fact that DB, DDB came in with an offer to buy Adam and Eve and turn it into yep. uh, Adam and Eve DDB. Uh, they were part of Omnicom. Why did it? Why did they sell and why was it so attractive to be part of a, a large network? Yeah, I think the guys um, were used to working as part of a large network of WPP, which owned uh, Rainy Kelly at the time. And I think, in truth, that was one of the reasons they decided to go out on their own, because they're worried about the, con the constraints of working within the network. So I think for all of us, when this conversation started happening, we're like, is this the right thing? Mm. Are we going to lose part of what made everything magical? But then we kind of looked in um, DDB at the time. Well, DDB was the most awarded agency in London. It had one of the most fascinating histories, you know, with BMP and all of that. And the founding partners originally back in the, God, I'm going to get this wrong, but in the 60s. And so it was hugely flattering to kind of be approached by them to say, look, we feel you guys are going to add value to what we currently offer. Because the truth is, you know, DDB in their own right were brilliant. They were renowned for having some of the sharpest strategic minds. And equally for the craft of their work, it was, you know, always well regarded, but equally it wasn't making as much money as it should do. Mm. And it was losing the, the reputation that it had once had. And that was being at the creative forefront. And we had just won agency of the year, a couple of years in a row. We were seen as the most creative agency in town. And I suppose they wanted to rekindle that. And it was, um, it was a strange, strange relationship because yes, we were bought by Omnicom, we were bought by DDB UK and it was, I suppose, a reverse merger where the smaller agency went in to run the bigger agency. So the management team from uh, Adam and Eve went in to run DDB. And you can imagine that's, that's a bit of a kick in the nuts. I'm sure that must have been hugely intimidating because you guys were sort of roughly 65 people at the time, even though you had this reputation of being amazingly creative and innovative they had a team of sort of 400 people and they were around for sort of 60 years and done some of the, you know, most amazing uh, advertising of the last, you know, 60, 70 years or, yeah. or what have you. So that must have been amazingly intimidated to walk into that environment. How, what was the transition like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I don't know, I never felt intimidated. I felt, I think the word we'd use to describe is this is a massive opportunity let's get it right you know let's let's not let's not fuck this up this is it's it's we have got 400 people who have got skills in so many things that we would have loved to have had at adam and eve 
it's an opportunity. This is amazing. Now we have got access to a data partner. We've got access to uh, a platform dev partner. We've got UX. We've got uh, content. Yeah. We've got all of these things which sure. you know we we never had at our fingertips when we were Adam and Eve. So it was it was just an opportunity to go right. Let's do this. Let's right. harness this beast and let's do some crazy stuff. And I think the the thing that we were very clear on when we all went over was you know these guys have a legacy and we should be proud of that. We need mm. to embrace their legacy. We are young. Mm. These guys have been going for years and they have got the greatest people working here and have got a back catalog of the greatest work. So let's, let's embrace it. How do we harness all this to make the best things possible? So the thing that we went in and said was that it's all about momentum. We need to as quickly as possible demonstrate how if we work with the best people at DDB, with the best people from Adam and Eve, that's when the best things are going to happen. Right. So, you know, a legacy client at DDB was VW and, you know, some of the most iconic advertising uh, that's ever been done in the automotive industry has been mm-hmm. done by DDB for VW. Mm-hmm. You just think about the lemon ad. Back sure. in the day, that was done by DDB. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, so we're like, right, okay, that is a legacy bit of business. But one of the bits of business that DDB have never really been able to get a hold of within VW was their commercial vehicles arm, which right. doesn't sound the most glamorous. It's essentially their vans. and um, But it always, always eluded them. And so we went in, VW commercial vehicles was up for tender. And we went in and we said, right, let's do this. Let's work together, DDB and Adam and Eve, straight off the bat and demonstrate what it's like for the two of us pitching together. Hmm. And one of the things Adam and Eve had a huge reputation for was being brilliant at pitching, you know, brilliant at being able to tell a story in a pitch and brilliant at executing the ideas. Sure. And equally, you know, DDB had this incredible reputation of having the sharpest minds, crafting things. Hmm. But equally, the relationship with DD, uh, with VW and therefore knowing what that business wanted sure. to operate. And so, yeah, within the first couple of months, we were working on this pitch and were successful on it. And it was one of those things where we kind of really coagulated the... That word sounds really wrong in that context. <laughs> yeah, we but we brought, know what you mean. brought yeah. together these right. two worlds for, for success. And we were successful and it was a brilliant pitch and everyone kind of recognized that point. Yeah. Actually, everyone has got something to offer on this new relationship. The thing that we then needed to carry on was, okay, we've won a pitch, but what's the work we can now get out? Mm. And we were in a very fortunate position where we were, I think it was around November time, so the next John Lewis ad was about to drop, which was the long wait, mm. which was the little boy who was literally counting down to Christmas. Oh. And everyone thinking that he's counting down because he can't wait to receive a present. Right. But the truth is, he can't wait to give a present to his parents. And of all the John Lewis ads, that's my favorite. I think yeah. it's just an unbelievable piece of communication. Sure. So we dropped that shortly afterwards. And at the same time, uh, there was a piece of work for Harvey Nichols, right. um, which DDB had been working on whilst the murder had been taking place, which dropped at a very similar time. And so as... a an agency brought together with one a pitch we'd done two of the best christmas campaigns mm. that christmas and everyone could kind of see what the vision was for this new agency sure. and how it worked and it was yeah you could say it was lucky or you could say this was all planned but equally the outcome was um we were able to kind of foster this spirit of mm. we are a juggernaut now we can do whatever we want and you know we are going to make the best work interesting how important was it to get those early quick wins relatively early in your uh working relationship there because you know from the outside you know who are these guys who are these young guys coming in and telling us about 
the media and advertising landscape, even though you've won, you know, you, you know, you had a huge amount of credibility and won a lot, a lot of awards before that, there must have been a little bit of skepticism from their side. So how important was it for you to demonstrate uh, credibility quite quickly by winning those those accounts? Yeah, absolutely. It was critical because, you know, if you had imagined at this time as well, there was swathes of the existing management team and DDB sure. who were moving on. And so if you are sitting there as an employee of DDB, you are looking up and going, I'm not entirely sure who mm. my leader is now. And, you know, that's, it's hugely important that you step into mm. that role, a vacuum quickly and demonstrate what your expectation is from the people who work for you. And I think, yeah, the quick wins are important. The ways of working were important. The, the flexible thinking was important. But ultimately, you know, we are in the industry of creating ideas and demonstrating that the best ideas could come from this organization. That was the most important thing. Now, with more and more budget going to content and social, we're not limited anymore by the 30 or 60, 60 second uh, TV ads. How does this change the way agencies can respond to challenging brand problems? It's an opportunity, isn't it? I think, um, yeah, 30 and 60 was always, I, I remember, perennially having a debate around what is the value of doing a 60 second ad because there was never really any data that demonstrate demonstrated the a the uplift the brand uplift of doing a 60 second and equally the value against what you'd be paying for a 30 and i think what what has happened with the, the growth of content and the opportunities outside of the tr traditional broadcasting scenarios is the chance to do longer form storytelling or tell our story in a slightly different way, which is just a huge opportunity. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things I was fortunate enough to be involved in was pitching for FIFA. Hmm. Um, EA Sports is, you know, biggest football franchise. Actually, when I say their biggest, it was the biggest franchise within their gaming portfolio and is just an unbelievable brand to work with. And I think, you know, they came to us and I they were, brilliant set of guys over there unbelievably progressive in the way that they think about marketing and they said guys we don't want you to come back with a tv ad we want you to come back with an idea and that idea can live wherever that idea should be uh, but ultimately will result in long-form content in some form and it's like okay that's interesting because everyone talks about media neutrality and it's been you know ever since i've been in the industry people have talked about yeah we start with the idea and it's media neutrality but everyone has got so many vested interests in pushing a specific channel that never really plays true right um but with this it was one of those things where it's like you know as an advertising agency we haven't got a vested interest in pushing somewhere something into a specific channel we've got a vested interest in doing the best idea <laughs> So where we got to with FIFA was FIFA is this cultural phenomenon whereby, you know, if something happens on a football pitch, so if someone does uh, you know, um, potential or whatever it might be, some kind of special move, a Johan Cruyff step over, sure. then FIFA within 48 hours can get that move put into the game. It is phenomenal. That's so amazing. you can make sure they are the, the coalface of culture by reflecting what goes on in the real world in the game. Mm. And equally, you know, if you think about the, the Viking clap that happened at the World Cup, right, okay. they were able to put that in straight away. And it's just Amazing. like where you've got a product that can react to culture sure. so quickly, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So we looked at that and went, well, look, you, people are used to FIFA reflecting what is happening in football culture. And we asked ourselves, is, the, is there a way that we can get FIFA to inform 
football culture as well as kind of broader culture. So we kind of went the other way around and we said, we're going to put something in the game, a move in the game. And then we're going to seed it out to various influencers, various <laughs> ambassadors, various football. Okay. Yeah. And see, if, see if they'll do it in the real Interesting. world. So right. we, we, put, we put this move in the game called El Tornado, which, as I said at the beginning of this chat, I was never the most talented <laughs> footballer. Right. Always a very keen footballer, but never the most talented. But you could recognize but, talent. Yeah, I could recognize right, talent. Right. Yeah, so Couldn't we, do it yourself. We, we, we brought in people to do the El Tornado, <laughs> right. which was essentially a pullback, a flip up in the air, and then uh, a volley into the goal. And um, yeah, we kind of designed this move. Then we got our friend Cristiano Ronaldo to do this move with a full body motion kind of kit on. As you do. Which FIFA then recorded him doing, which then they coded into the game. Mm. And then we just pushed it out and we told all these influencers, look, there's a secret move. Can you find it? And they went mental for it. And it it was just incredible seeing not only footballers, but influencers and various people trying to do this thing. And then it became this thing where it was bigger than just football. So people were just memeing off what a tornado was. And it was just, yeah, it was just incredible to do. And ultimately, it ended up in a two and a half minute film, which kind of told the story of what I've just explained now. But it didn't start with like a 30 or a 60 second broadcast out message. Sure. It was like, how do we actually make this a cultural uh, phenomenon? How do we make sure that we're talking to people in the most relevant ways? But ultimately, and the thing that got me excited about where I am now, prior to kind of what I was doing at Adam and Eve, was it started with the audience. It started with talking to the people who currently pay to play the FIFA game and saying there's something in this game so that they would feel excited about FIFA, understanding what what Mm. they were all about and what mattered to them. But then from there, built out into other audiences as a result. And I think for me, that was like, okay, this is interesting. This is how advertising can be done in the future advertising doesn't need to be a transmit as advertising doesn't need to be i've got a message that i want to tell people right about. advertising should be more about the value exchange advertising should be a two-way conversation Interesting. where you're giving something to people and they're giving something back and if you can get that and do that in the right way for me that that is winning that's really interesting. And in fact, I heard that's what the definition of really great art is. It's, you know, there's the thing that the artist puts out to the world, the painting, the sculpture, what have you. And then there's the interpretation of that thing by the viewer of the art. So, um, and then that interpretation changes what the actual art is. Um, and that's, so that's super fascinating. That, that takes us then nicely into Jungle Creations, because in 2019, beginning of the year, you became the managing director for Jungle Creations, one of the fastest growing companies in Europe, as we mentioned at the top of the show. In three years, the agency grew revenue by a staggering 3,863%. That's just astonishing success for a new agency. What's yeah. your secret? <laughs> Uh, I would love to say I'm responsible for that growth. <laughs> I've, as you said, I've only been there a year. Right. And this has been, um, yeah, the company's been going for five years. And it was set up by a guy called Jamie Boulding, who, oh, it's just terrifying. The guy is now 28. So he started it wow. when he was 23, started it just after university. Phenomenal. Yeah, it's essentially, for those, those guys who don't know who Jungle Creations are, it's a social first publisher. So essentially, imagine a... TV broadcaster like ITV, but being purely on social. Hmm. So we've got a channel which is dedicated to entertainment, and that channel exists across all the social platforms. 
Uh, we've got a channel dedicated to food and recipes. Uh, we've got one dedicated to crafting. We've got one dedicated to fitness. We've got one dedicated to um, female first stories and empowerment. And so we've got these five channels. And across these channels, we've got 115 million followers. So it's this absolute melting pot of content, understanding what people want, understanding what people are going to share, understanding what trends are emerging. And this has all been built up, yeah, as I said, from small beginnings five years ago. And hmm. it's, um, yeah, I was approached by Jungle Creations back in well, end of 2018 to say, look, we're sitting on all this insight. We know so much about what people want, what they're sharing, what they like, what things are emerging, what uh, content flies, why. We feel we can take this to brands directly and offer something that no one else can offer, which is essentially audience-first thinking backed up by robust insight from an audience that we have access to. So I had this conversation with Jamie and the guys and yeah, joined, joined Jungle Creations to set up a, a creative agency within it. Hmm. And, really um, fascinating. Yeah, it was, it's been unbelievable. It's been an absolute journey. I've been here a year now, just over a year. Um, yeah, and launched the Wild, the creative agency within uh, Jungle Creations. There existed a, kind of a production unit previously because we do a lot of branded content with brands anyway. But it was about formalizing that and turning it into a proper creative agency, taking it out to market and telling brands, look, if you want to know what you could be doing and how you could be doing it better, we're the guys to talk to. And it's hmm. been a phenomenal year and we've done some wicked things. Absolutely fascinating. So talk about what problems brands typically have when they approach you. Um, what are some of your creative uh, work or creative solutions that you're most proud of? Talk a little bit about some of the, some of the problems that your clients have. Well, as I said, because we're our, our principle is always about being social first not social first well social first and audience first we mm. a lot of the solutions we arrive at are social solutions but it's about being audience first and understanding the audience so the brands that we predominantly talk to is they're coming to us and saying that we really really want to reach this audience and with the fragmentation of media and the, the you know if we've been quite cynical the the way tv linear tv is moving mm -hmm. we're struggling to reach audiences in the most meaningful way and so they come to us and say, how would you do it? How, what is your recommendation for reaching the right audience with the right message? And, you know, we've, we've had a huge amount of success with it. So in the last year, National Lottery, I call out, is one of the biggest bits of, you know, work that we've done. It's been, I think we've created about 20 documentaries for them. And the reason they wanted, they wanted to talk to us was it was their 25th anniversary. Hmm. Uh, they wanted to talk about the fact that over those 25 years, they've been given a huge amount of money to local causes and they wanted to highlight the fact that they'd been doing that because the truth is not many people knew that sure. she has been contributing so much to the fabric of society in Britain. So <laughs> they came to us and said, how do we do that? And we're like, well, firstly, there is, you know, serialized content where you can t tell a consecutive story is very successful when it comes to the content space. Equally with that serialized content, you need to make sure that, it's telling a story that people can relate to. And I think people or brands are very guilty of going, let's just make a documentary or let's just make sure. CRI content because that's what you do. But right. truth is you need to be quite granular in identifying what it is that's going to work. And what we identified and what we ultimately made were you know, documentaries that focused in on an individual story and an individual story that 
people A, hadn't heard before or B, could relate to in some way. So, for example, one of them we told was around Kai White, who's mm. a BMX rider, and people don't know that uh, BMX BMX is going to be in the Olympics this year. So, as um, you know, this guy has come from doing a sport that hasn't really had much endorsement or sponsorship to now potentially being on the pinnacle of being a superstar. Mm. So, telling that story of Kai White and the struggles he's gone through, and interviewing his parents to say, you know, how did you go about doing this? You know, right. a sport that ultimately you yeah. probably looking down the tunnel go this is never going to be professional in any way sure. you're probably not going to get the biggest return so why do it and getting those human stories behind the individual and behind the sports person and behind behind kai that's what kind of unlocks you know the success of them another one we told was around equine therapy so using horses to help people with depression or uh, issues they might have you know they might be battling and uh, we told the story of Beth who you know used equine therapy to kind of overcome issues she had had around bullying and it's about understanding what are those stories that are going to relate and it's you know you could say that's always been the case that is what advertising has been doing since well you know time memorandum but you know what we're able to do is get that human story back it up with data because we know what will perform in the content space and creating content that's going to ultimately be really compelling and engage people and giving that payback to the brand. So that's been something we're hugely proud of and had, a, you know, done a huge amount of work for. But, you know, you move into another space as well. And the work that we've been doing for OnePlus, OnePlus is a, a mobile phone brand. Huh. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of them. No. But they're basically a challenger to the iPhone. They are better right. than the iPhone, but about half the price. Better than and, the iPhone? That's yeah, a bold, that's a, a bold, bold claim. Call. They probably wouldn't let me put that in their advertising, right. but that's the truth. <laughs> And um, they came to us and said, look, we are <clears throat> the fastest and the smoothest experience you're going to have when it comes to uh, having a smartphone. And um, how can we dramatize that in a way that's interesting? And, you know, if that was an advertising solution, you go, right, fast and smooth, right? We're going right. to really do a product demo here and do it. And it's like, is that really the thing that's going to be the most compelling? So what we proposed them was, you know, at the heart of the OnePlus brand is about enabling people to connect. And so... We came up with an idea, which is if we're going to demonstrate and showcase the fast and speed of OnePlus phones, but at the same time, dramatize how we can enable people to connect in a more meaningful way. We thought, well, there's no more meaningful way than people connecting over music. That is one of the things, the truth sure. that exists. People connect over music. Sure. So if we could use these phones to make music and get people to connect in a, in a meaningful way over that, that's going to be quite powerful. So we came up with an idea to take 17 of these smartphones, turn them into a full piano, a digital piano. Uh, we built the app that kind of went on these phones, built a bespoke uh, piano. We f then found a pianist to make yeah, it. Yeah, I we did then, see that. Yeah, we got Amazing. this piano and we took it around Europe. And yeah. we put it in uh, major hotspots in European cities and we got uh, our pianist to play this incredible track and then we got people to experience it themselves and play and you know at a time of christmas when people are yeah kind of down whether they're shopping or they're kind of like texting people trying to get things happening well like look, just take a minute connect with people in a more meaningful way and it, yeah. was, it was just really powerful to see in a real life situation people stopping and then going right i'm just taking a minute here to enjoy music sure. and 
and you know relate to the person next to them or even relate to the person sure. that they've never met before and it was yeah it was a lovely bit of content that it was, was it really and, was yeah. it, it was such a beautiful emotive piece of work I, I watched it over Christmas as well I think you released it on your LinkedIn feed and it really uh it was really very emotional I I've I probably watched it how, how long was the video maybe like two minutes three minutes yeah, something like minutes, that yeah. And it really just sparked um, that kind of idea of what Christmas is and what the idea of sort of being close to people at Christmas time and connecting. And uh, it was a really emotive piece of work. Uh, yeah, no, Appreciate fantastic. Thanks, Thank you, you. you um, a couple of other things that really stand out to me about Jungle Creations is that the average age of uh, your workforce is 25 years old. You've got one employee there, an account manager who has a million followers on TikTok. So you're really bringing that knowledge of what's happening in the world with millennials and with young people into brands that really are trying to be um, on the on the pulse of, of the way things are changing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, yeah, if anyone's done the maths or as we've gone through my <laughs> My story since the beginning will kind of identify that I'm probably slightly older than 25. <laughs> 26? And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I wish. Uh, the truth is I am the second oldest person in this in this company. And um, I'm not that old, but yeah, when, you, when you're surrounded by 25-year-olds. Yeah, you, you feel old. It, but the truth is what is absolutely phenomenal is, yeah, it is a young workforce, but you have people who have come into roles, and it is all about this kind of portfolio career. People want to be a videographer at the same time, being a creative. Sure. People want to be a producer as well as being an editor. People want to be a PM as well as running their own social channels and having their own kind of audiences. And it's and what that breeds is people who kind of don't think in a singular way, don't think, right, my job starts and ends here. They're thinking about the end-to-end -end problem. And I think that's quite what, what I certainly experienced is working with a, a workforce like this is, everyone's always on everyone has got something to input and invariably it's input that is going to add to the ultimate outcome and yeah you touched on one of the guys here having a million followers on tiktok you know we've got uh our head of insights um was a tattoo uh, designer huh. and had fifty thousand followers on instagram with the tattoo designs he did um you know we have all kinds of folk and i love that about this place i love the fact that you know i could probably ask um, shout out the door now into the main auditorium and ask, can anyone shoot me a video now? Huh. About five people put their hands up and say, I'll do it. And, Fantastic. you know, having that fluidity, having that flexibility and having ultimately, you know, these are employees, but they're also creators in their own rights. They are influencers in their own rights and they are ideators in their own rights. Huh. And you should never underestimate that because an idea can come from anywhere. And there is a huge amount of talent coming through and it's got to be harnessed and used in the best possible way. Quite fascinating. Dylan, last couple of questions before we get into our favourite questions towards the back end of the interview. Um, which brands would you absolutely love to work with right now? So either brands that you look at and you're like, look, you, you know, we would do such a great piece of work for you uh, or you, you're in need of an agency like us to help you. Which, what type of brands would you absolutely love to work with right now? So if you think back, about 10 years ago and you look at brands like well Halifax one of the brands I worked on or KFC or Greg's or even Burberry you go these are desperately uncool brands and they can't 
reach their audiences in a meaningful way. And you look at them now, and you go, KFC are one of the most on-point mm-hmm. brands. Greg's are one of the most on-point brands. Burberry are one of the most on-point brands. Sure. And I think for me, that's it. It's finding those brands who aren't able to connect in the most meaningful way with their audiences. They aren't able to offer that value exchange as it stands at the moment. And helping them do that, helping them kind of identify how they can reach a new audience or connect better with their existing audience. Mm. They're the brands that for me, I get really excited about. And I don't want to name names because mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to... <laughs> Right, so unfair, right. Okay. But, um, you know, the, the, the categories that no I think... No one's listening, just, just me. <laughs> the categories that I think are really interesting. I think um, the financial services industry, banks, mm-hmm. if you look at them, you know, you've got the likes of Monzo, Starling coming through and they're just sure. doing an absolute stellar job. Sure. And even if you look at the way they're operating as well, I think we did some research on how much content they're publishing and equally how, how the engagement of that content dwarfs the content that is put out by the traditional big five banks mm. is just, it's quite worrying if I were sitting there as one of those big five banks and equally thinking about how I'm going to attract new customers. Um, so yeah, I think banks, those big banks, I think love to talk to them about what they could be doing, how they could be doing it better and how they can reach new audiences. I think automotive brands as well. I think there are so many interesting stories um, automotive brands could be telling about their portfolio. If you even look at the requirements from the government around what automotive brands need to do about having an electric vehicle within their portfolio and telling that story and being the first to market to tell it in a meaningful way. I see a lot of work out there that goes, we've got an electric car, but I don't see anyone doing it in a way that makes me, me go, that's a brand that I can believe in and relate to. And I think automotive brands, by, by the very nature of, yeah, apart from Tesla, is baked into their DNA. Right. Um, you know, I, I think automotive brands are, you know, I've got a huge job to do to bring in a new generation. I've got a huge job to do to kind of demonstrate that they're actually adding value to, you know, the fabric of what this nation is all about. Mm. You know, there was Dieselgate a few years ago. Now we're moving into the electric world, which is fascinating and a huge opportunity. And, I, you know, I'd love to talk to automotive brands about how we can reach those new audiences and how we can get their, their story out there to make it a story that people can relate to. Um yeah, I think I think they're just great categories. Mm, yeah. Really interesting. I mean, so so you talk about Monzo and Starling and and the Challenger banks and the content that they're putting out, um, and you would almost argue that they have to do that because the big banks are just big and sort of established, and they've yeah. got deep relationships with us since we were children. Ultimately, are the big banks really frightened and afraid of the new Challenger banks, the Monzos and the Starling Starlings of this world? Just interesting to get your thoughts on that. Um, I think you, know, you could have asked this for how long? 15 years ago when First Direct came out. And you're yeah. like, oh, really? What are they going to do? And then you know it's with First Direct. They came out and they said, look, we're just going to do customer, customer service in a brilliant way, which banks weren't doing. And as a result of that, you know, they put themselves at the table. I think, mm. I think banks would be foolish not to look at the, um, what these brands are doing. And I think the difference for me, if I kind of look at the Monzos and the Starlings, yes, they're able to talk to a younger audience in a meaningful way, but they are operating more like, not a bank, you know? They are operating like, this is a, we've got a role in your life. We've got a reason to exist in your existence. Whereas for a lot of the banks, people see them as disposable or see them as something that is, I only call on if there's an issue. They don't see them playing Mm a valued role in their daily existence. Sure. And I think Starling and Monzo have done a really good job of demonstrating that. Now, you know, you could equally say, 
you know, look at with payday loans and all those companies that started how many years ago, five, six years ago, and now long, no longer exist, quite rightfully, mm. you know, with the Starlings and the Monzos, they're going to do something similar. They've come into the financial services world. It's tricky to operate in it. What is their long-term plan? But, you know, from what I've seen today and from what I've seen with the positive sentiment that exists around those brands, mm. you know, if I was uh, one of the big five, I would be worried. And, you know... I don't know the details of what, sure. what the big five are planning, but maybe they do do a spin-off like Vodafone doing Voxy and um, mm. um, with, uh, was it, O2 doing GifGaf. You know, mm. thinking about what are those challenger brands that can exist within the category that are aligned with the big five, but are essentially brands in their own right that can talk to a different audience. You know, this is showing my naivety in understanding the financial services marketplace <laughs> because, Not you know, Lloyd's, Lloyd's might be doing something like that already. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, for me, it just kind of, demonstrates a huge opportunity. Really interesting, quite quite fascinating. Dylan, I, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, so let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm really interested to ask you some of them as well. Uh, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned <laughs> from the experience. <laughs> um, tell you about a time I failed. Uh, so when I was at B&B, I was running a very small bit of business. Um, it was Virgin Active, so you'd think it was kind of a, a big, you know, famous brand. But Virgin Active were basically a licensed version of the Virgin name. Uh, they were a gym brand. Um, they were a wicked gym brand, uh, but they didn't invest too heavily in um, advertising, and they certainly didn't invest too heavily in uh, what we had to offer. And I think, you know, I was running Carling at the time, which was unbelievably good fun and huge and doing lots of exciting things and connecting with a you know, an audience in an interesting way. And I was working on TUI, a travel brand. Mm. And, you know, I think truthfully, I didn't invest as much time in, in the Virgin Active um, relationship. Mm. And as a result, it terminated. And I think, you know, that was a huge learning for me. Mm. Because I was like, you know, irrespective of how much a brand is paying you or how much they want to do, it's your responsibility as an agency to service your Brands are paying you two pounds as well as the brands are paying you two sure, million pounds. Sure. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's they have an interface with you, they have an experience with you, and you have a responsibility to demonstrate that everyone who's having an interface with that agency is going to get the same level of service. And mm. I think, you know, I hold my hands up and say that was a failure on my part, and it was something I learned from. Quite, quite fascinating. Tell us about. Well, actually, we've talked about some of your early mentors. Actually, Trevor Beattie, Andrew McGuinness, etc. I don't know whether you want to add any more names to that, but. Who are some of your other mentors and how do you improve your skills and abilities as a, as a leader? Um, so on the early mentors one, I'd call out, there was a guy called Ben Stevens, who was the MD of Rapier. Okay. And he taught me one thing, which I took from the very beginning, which you could read it two ways, but I always took it in a fairly positive way, which was always have a healthy paranoia. And yeah. that is to say, with a job, don't just assume that job's going to go well. Don't assume that once you've served that out or played it out, it's all going to go fine. You've just got to always be on, yeah. always be on the detail because, you know, there, something might change. There might be, you know, if you're working on a, an automotive brand, say, and then you have Dieselgate. You can't, you can't know that's sure. going to happen. Or if you're working on a travel brand like it was with Tui and then... And then coronavirus. And then, yeah, there's coronavirus or a volcano erupts right. in, uh, 
in Iceland and every flight is grounded, you know, and people yeah. are out of pocket because sure. they have got to stay there. You know, always, always have an approach which is like, there might be something that goes wrong. And it's, <clears throat> it's quite a weird thing to say because I would never encourage anyone to live with a healthy paranoia because mm. that's going to take you down a very dark path. But I think in this industry, just being aware and being kind of, I suppose, nimble enough to go, right, something might go wrong. Hmm. If it does, how can we pivot? Um, I think that's something really that I've interesting. With me. Yeah. And, and how do you improve your skills as a leader? How do I improve? I always, I always like to put myself in situations where I feel uncomfortable. So, you know, my background is advertising. That is what I've done from the beginning. Rapier was an integrated agency. So gave me that experience through the line. But then my next agency was advertising. Adam and Eve was pretty much advertising. And coming to Jungle Creations, Jungle Creations is a social publisher. You know, it's so different to anything I'd ever done before. Mm. And it made me uncomfortable, which is good because it's like, God, there are guys here talking about the algorithms that exist on the platforms, the, the kind of content we should be publishing, the different platforms that are launching, the opportunities that exist within them. And I had to school myself and get up to speed quite quickly. And I think, you know, for me, that is your responsibility as a leader. It's like, okay, these things are happening. I need to know more about them because if I demonstrate to the people I don't know what I'm talking about, how can they look up to me and go, this guy can lead me in the right direction? So, yeah, that has been my, always my approach, just That's put amazing. myself in an uncomfortable position and then school up because mm. ultimately it's your responsibility to do that. Absolutely fascinating. The book's question, this is the question that we get most uh, emails and LinkedIn <laughs> messages about. So Brilliant. no pressure. People have had some fantastic book recommendations. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. Um, favorite books. Uh, Shantaram, I think would be one of my favorite books by Grave Gregory David Roberts. Um, yeah, phenomenal piece of literature. What is it know, called? Sorry. Shantaram. Shantaram. So it's the story of uh, an Australian guy who is put away in prison for armed robbery, then escapes and is thinks of making a new life. Uh, I think he is planning on heading to Germany, but he ends up in wow. India and spends the next uh, considerable amount of time in India. And it follows his stories of living in the slums and Phenomenal. getting involved in all kinds of shenanigans. And it's loosely based on this guy's life, but he avidly denies it's not. But I think reading between the lines, you can see there is. And it's just huh. a great literary piece it's it's got phenomenal storytelling in, in it it's quite self-indulgent at times which i think is the main criticism people have of it but right. i think just as a uh, piece of writing i think it's phenomenal so yeah that is um Thank a fiction you. piece for right. a Added to the list for a fact piece um i've just finished reading prisoners of geography okay. um which is by a guy called tim marshall and it's all about uh, how geography really defines the ideology of countries huh. and territories right it focuses on 10 um i suppose countries and why yeah. they are and why they behave the way they are now you know once again people could say it's a slightly simplistic way to look at it but equally it's a way of looking at it i've never really considered so you know why the u.s became a superpower sure. because it's kind of so isolated why China has the ability to grow and grow because of the planes in front of it. Why Russia is paranoid about the bridge between it and the West because there are these um, flat 200 miles of um, flatlands that if someone were to invade across, they could. So therefore, right. how can... They Russia have to be paranoid. They have to keep... Yeah, yeah really interesting. Strong pockets of relationships with previous Eastern Bloc states to ensure oh. there is a barrier between them and you know the West. And... You know, it's a fascinating read. Yeah. 
It's one of those ones I'd definitely encourage people to have a look at. Fantastic. If they don't agree with everything that's written in it, it just kind of gets you to reframe things in a different way. Prisoners of Geography. Give us, yeah. give us one more. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's one final book which um, I've kind of would always recommend to people who are interested in marketing, which is it's got a slightly dodgy title, mm. but I love the content within it. Um, it's, it's called Marketing Greatest Hits. <laughs> <laughs> and it's by a guy called Kevin Duncan. Okay. And he's done a couple of volumes. Okay. And it's a very, very simple principle. Right. Which is he reviews, I can't remember how many books he reviews, but it's about 30 marketing tomes. Yeah. Marketing tomes you, you know, you'd usually really read, whether it's Byron Sharp or, you know, um, whoever it might be in, right. in, in the marketing world. And he basically gives a synopsis, a one-line sentence on what the book's about, and then pulls out the key points oh, and key brilliant. arguments that are being made. Brilliant. And it's one of those, <laughs> it's like, you know, when we all did our A-levels or GCSEs, we'd all right. try and get our hands on the textbook, right, right. all the sources in one place. <laughs> and maybe I'm harking back to how I loved, you know, to find those, those um, third-party manuals that kind of pulled everything into one place. Right. But it's just one of those things where you can go, right, this is going to give me an overview of all of this sure. marketing literature. Yeah. If there's stuff that jumps out of me, I then can read the book myself and find out what it has to say as a kind of first party source. But yeah, yeah it's, it's quite one of those smart. Which, it's actually it's, really quite smart uh, because I, you I, don't I, have time to read all those books, you know, because if, if someone can curate for you, uh, yeah. which is the reason why Spotify and, and brands <laughs> like that are, are, are doing what they're doing. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's good. It's a very good book. So I'm sure Kevin will love me for giving that plug. <laughs> I used to play football with Kevin. <laughs> Once again, oh, why does he always come back to football? Play football terribly with Kevin. Yeah. Uh, back in the day at, a, right. at my Sunday league team. And um, he used to work in the industry and then set off to become a consultant and started yeah. publishing these. And I was like, this is absolutely genius. Yeah. So, yeah, Fantastic. plug in there. Right. Added to my Amazon reading list as well. Thank you for those <laughs> For those three. They all sound no fantastic. Um, Amazon Prime Video or Netflix? Whew. That's a bit of a controversial one because we're having a number of conversations with Amazon at the moment. We've got a great relationship. But in truth, my go-to is Netflix. Okay, interesting. Can you say that even though you're about to... Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, they're they're okay with that. They love the healthy conversation. Okay, sure. What what do you watch on Netflix that's good? Uh, What do I watch most recently? Um, Truthfully, this is a bit embarrassing. I only got into Peaky Blinders. Uh, about two or three months ago. So uh, people have been talking about it for years, for years. And for whatever reason. I never really did it, and then I just binged, and it is it's brilliant. It's really good. You know, I'm from Birmingham, right? I'm, so yeah, this is happening in Birmingham, so that's absolutely essential. Watching everyone, everyone in Birmingham watches it. I'm really uh, surprised that you haven't you haven't um, watched it. If you, if you ever come to the city, everyone, every quarter of the, of the city is just there's some reference to Peaky Peaky really? Blinders somewhere. Yeah. The thing, the thing that I just found fascinating about it, because I've seen the trailers and just kind of taken it at face value, that it was a gang in Birmingham and they mm. went around causing havoc and really mm. kind of delved into the story behind the Peaky Blinders. But the thing for me that makes it just unmissable and just so fascinating is the period of history, which I knew mm. nothing about. So mm. the fact that there were 18, 19-year-old boys coming back from war who have experienced such atrocities and therefore it was normal for them to exist in a certain way. Mm. And it's just thinking about the psychology that exists behind that. It's just absolutely fascinating. So yeah, was hooked. Fantastic. Um, Last couple of questions and then I'll I'll let you go. 
What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who wants to start their career in the advertising or the media world? That must happen to you almost on a daily basis. <laughs> um, the, um, the advice I'd give. Um, so, number one, don't rely on nepotism. However, lean into as many people that you know. Right. But don't, don't rely on it because it's right. not going to get you a job, but it's going to get you interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. And number two, if you're doing a CV, uh, make it simple. Make it short. Make it concise. I think people are very guilty of over-elaborating or trying to put things on three pages. Mm. If you can demonstrate that you can think in one page and show a clarity of thought, that's wicked. So I think everyone sometimes just gets a bit too straight with their answers. And I just love it if someone's going to challenge me or give me an opinion, even if it's wrong or fundamentally flawed. The fact that they're thinking that way is brilliant. But the most important thing or biggest bit of advice I'll give to uh, people coming through is, you know, where you start isn't where you end, you know. So you might come in as an account exec or you might come in as a, a video editor or you might come in as a strategist, but you might end up being a director or a content creator or a creative or a producer or whatever it might be. And I think that is the, the beauty of a young industry like social and a young industry like the company I work in is, you know, we, we don't put people in pigeonholes or boxes. And I think that's potentially what the advertising industry is slightly guilty of and why they're missing out on some great talent. Mm. So yeah, the advice I'd give is just, just, you know, where you start isn't necessarily where you're going to end, but where you start, where you start is going to be a great grounding. That is fascinating. And my final question, Dylan, what do you know about the world of advertising and media today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? <laughs> um, I know about the world of advertising media today that I knew. Yeah, I would say having built a business and building a business, um, I think there's one thing that people really undervalue when they start out in the industry, and that is what the PL of a business looks like and the importance of uh, looking at a business like a business rather than always looking at the outputs because ultimately. A business needs to succeed and for a business to succeed it needs to make money and it needs to make money that is going to drive margin and therefore be able to employ people to make the best possible work and i think when i started out i was probably a little bit guilty of putting you know chasing money from clients or whatever it might be to the bottom of my priority list because at the top of it was doing this great bit of work or going to the shoot or whatever it might be and i think you know if i was talking to a younger me i'd say look you know, ultimately, you've always just got to think it's a business. It's a business. This, this isn't a hobby. You know, it's something that we've got to make money with, and we've got a responsibility to mm. employ people and make sure everyone can do what they want to do. So that sounds a bit hard mm. for a message to someone starting out, but you know, I think it's something I've noticed with a lot of people coming into the industry. Everyone, like myself, got seduced by the bright lights mm. and the potential outputs, but. You can't lose sight of why we do this. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. Dylan, thank you so much for doing this. No worries, man. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. We have been speaking with Dylan Davenport. He is currently the managing director at The Wild at Jungle Creations. If you enjoy this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 52 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales and marketing leaders. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathanagencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. Follow me on Twitter at NathanAnnieBarber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. 
Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Mariam Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Masters.